0: that this would give us maybe some clarity and some permission. Um, so this morning, we're going to look at, um, this is called the three boxes. So everybody sees, I think on Facebook even, you can see the three boxes that are in front of us. If you are listening on the podcast, there are three white boxes in front of me. Uh, so if you can't uh, see, then there you have it. Um, But we're going to start this morning. I'm going to read the scripture and then we're just going to talk about what this might mean. First Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12 says we and I'm reading from the Passion Translation. um, So you'll probably recognize the verse, but but it phrases it a little bit differently. We don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist. But it won't be long. Before the weather clears and the sun shines bright, we'll see it all then. We'll see it as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly just as he knows us. But for now, until that completeness, we have three things to do to lead us towards that consummation. Trust steadily in God. Hope unswervingly. That's an interesting word. Hope unswervingly and love extravagantly and the best of these three is what love everybody familiar with that passage Uh, and i said the passion translation that actually is the message translation but um so what he's ultimately saying is that and there's all kinds of different doctrinal points about what that might mean that we don't see clearly um now people have said before that what that means is that we will um at some point when we're when the rapture happens Right. And we have our spiritual bodies, then we'll see clearly Um, at some. uh, Some people have said when we when we die or when we get to heaven, we'll see clearly. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. That's just not what it means. And if you think that when you die, all of a sudden, everything will be clear. I I can't say that that's not true because I've never died, Uh, but I can tell you there's nothing in the scriptures that would indicate that to be the case. So like this idea that when you die and you get to heaven, you'll understand everything, God's ways will make sense, and all of a sudden like you'll get it like, oh, David and Goliath. You know, it, that's just, does that, is that how God works now? Or does God lead you and teach you? So are you a spiritual being now? Will you be a spiritual being then? Why would God change how he develops you? God is all about partnership. Why would he stop being about partnership? Why all of a sudden would God just give you a flash drive like the Matrix? You can plug it into the side of your head and download everything that's ever happened. Now I get it. Well, guess what? If all of a sudden you get it all and it's perfectly clear, you've just become God. not the way it works at what point how are you separate from him if all of a sudden you get it all and it's perfectly clear it just doesn't work that way so what paul is saying is there is a process and a progress whereby god develops us little by little by little and i i almost put this on a slide but um but you can um just remember it because i know all of you have those cool photographic memories um that the way you develop I say today is slowly, incrementally, and always relationally. The way you mature is always going to be relational. He's going to work it through your interactions with other people. Whatever it is, he needs to work. He's going to work it in your interactions with others. So he will deal with a place within you that's underdeveloped and that is immature, and he will probe it with other people, and they probably won't be people you like. He doesn't tend to use the people that tell me all the things I love to hear. He's probably not going to send all of you who are so nice and sweet and kind to me to probe the places in me that are underdeveloped. That when they, like, there's just something about their face that I just want to punch just uh, But you know those people that, like, they walk in the room and you're just like, Ugh. those are the people. Paul called it the thorn in the flesh. He develops it that way. So he's always going to use it. It will be slowly, incrementally, and always relationally. So what the enemy will try to do, this is the easiest way. When you are listening to the enemy, you are closed and you are isolated. Just know that. If you are closed and isolated, you are probably not in a position to be developed. You are in a defensive position and you will stay as you are. The Lord will draw you unto himself. Absolutely. That will happen. But the difference is the Lord will draw you into intimacy, never into isolation. Does that make sense? Those two things are deeply different. The Lord will draw you into intimacy. He will beckon you. But the, and, and the difference is the Lord will beckon you into Intimacy. Defensiveness will drive you into isolation. The difference is being drawn or driven. And the two are not the same thing. And so that's part of this process that Paul is talking about. Trust steadily in God, hope unswervingly, and love extravagantly. If our love is not extravagant, it's not the God kind of love. That's always the measure. Of the type of love we have to have how extra it's just like giving and gratitude and thanks if it's not extravagant if if it's not it's probably humanistic and that doesn't mean it's bad you know what i mean there's that doesn't mean that it's wrong it just means he wants to take us further so this morning i would like to talk to you about a concept that is growing in popularity throughout the world this concept is the concept of deconstruction Has anybody ever heard this term Has anybody ever heard the term deconstruction, where things are taken apart, right? We've heard that. Okay, cool. Demolition, you know, you've heard that before. Um, So deconstruction is something that's really, really become popular um, in certain Christian circles. Um, So I think we need to talk about it because there are, even though there are many names for this process, um, it is something that we're all familiar with. Has anybody felt that through the last year and a half as a church, we've been going through deconstruction? Anybody? Has anybody felt like personally that you're going through deconstruction? Right. Okay, cool. So today I'd like to talk about that process and maybe give some language to what we've been living in. And with it, I hope give you permission that you might need so that you can allow this process to happen. And notice what I'm getting ready to say. That you would allow that process to happen in a healthy, life-giving relational environment deconstruction is always best when done in community almost every spiritual teacher I've read emphatically encourages that if at all possible you should not walk through deconstruction alone there is a cost to this path often that cost can include leaving relationships that include bad power dynamics so there are going to be times when you have to walk away from relationships because there's a bad type power dynamic and it's toxic has anybody ever had toxic people and you're like i just can't do that anymore or i've got to have better boundaries i'm not talking about that stuff right what i'm talking about is that it's always good in fact i know people that don't have any christian people around them any believers that believe like this that the their community aren't even Christians, but they're walking with them through deconstruction. I mean, it just can happen. Um, and so it's about having people who can keep you balanced, who can, who can shore you up, but we're supposed to walk this through this together. And thankfully, as a church, we have one another, right? That's the point of this. That's how it's supposed to work. But almost every spiritual leader, and I mean going back to like Jesus, he sent them out what? supposed to walk it with people it is so much healthier to be able to do it that way so i'm not implying that the people we've left or the relationship we've left are bad but rather that i found a progressive faith journey that seems to often threaten those relationships based on tribalism which essentially means we all have to agree that we're right and scapegoating which is the point where we then say that person's wrong so we all agree that we're right they're wrong and then finally. Just bad power. Just bad power dynamics. Bad power dynamics is what you find in most churches where they have an inflated hierarchical structure. Pastor that whatever he says is like, you know, God's holy word, and uh, somebody that that um, you've seen it. I don't need to define it. Have you ever heard of pastors and you go, yeah, just something doesn't feel right about that. Parking spot and has two bodyguards that he walk in with walks in with. You know, that kind of thing. So that is a reality. But there is a deep meaning to walking this journey in relationship and community with others. Simply put, as Tosh would say faith is designed for family. Authority. So um, I was always taught that the Bible would teach that the ultimate authority of faith and practice is the Bible. So the Bible is the pillar and foundation of, of what it means to walk in faith. Actually, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, the pillar and foundation of faith is the church. I'm going to say that again. The authority, the ultimate authority of faith and practice is not the Bible according to the Bible, it's the church. Why? Because you can sit at home with your Bible and get it really, really, really wrong. But when we do it, enjoying and embracing the church, both locally and the big C church, then there's a balance that's there. When you see others, you can say, oh, I can glean from that and learn from that. When you walk it with people, there's something that's there. Jesus, I'll say this, this is probably hard for us, but it's just true. Jesus did not leave us the Bible. Jesus left us the Holy Spirit and the church. So when Jesus decided what he was going to leave us so we could make it, he didn't leave us the Bible. He left us the Holy Spirit and the church. And do you realize that the church went almost 500 years before it ever had a Bible. The Bible didn't birth the church. The church birthed the Bible. So maybe maybe for that reason we need to be a little bit more patient with our Catholic brothers and sisters. Who uh, we've said, I, we always used to joke about, it, well they don't even read the Bible, Catholics. Well part of that reason is because they had one Bible. It would take Ten years sometimes for a scribe in the Catholic church to write down the Bible. So they had one Bible in the in the um, whether it be in the Abbey or wherever it was, the monastery, wherever they gathered. There was one Bible. So people didn't have a Bible in your home. And you would go and The priest would tell you what the Bible said, but they still served. And some of the basis for you realize the guys at the time they created Christian orthodoxy, they didn't even have a Bible. So what do we have? We have the Holy Spirit and each other. So maybe we should have a higher regard for the Holy Spirit and for. This is how life works when it's healthy. We leave behind things that aren't working anymore. We leave behind things that have been handed uh, to us that are limiting to who God is or the beauty of life. Love has given us just like we leave behind pants that don't fit anymore. Right? When pants don't fit anymore, you don't just keep trying to put them on. You go buy new pants. Maybe you've only been, you've never had to buy new pants. But, like, that's what we do, right? So, why, when our doctrines don't work anymore, do we just, like, nope, I'm just going to keep doing it? No. The reality is all of our life is based on a healthy deconstruction. I don't know if you've ever thought about this with technology before, but I remember when I was growing up, my favorite thing in the world to do was to sit in front of my dad's record player or eight track. You guys remember those cool eight track players? My dad had one that looked like a boom box. It looked like a toolbox, like and on the side, the speakers would pop up and come off. It would like click on the sides and it had a Handle on it, so it looked like a toolbox. Top opened up, put the eight track in. So, so like it was my version of um, say anything, except I had an eight track player, you know, over my head, you know, like the boombox. Um, and uh, and so I remember though when we first got a cassette player, and what I had to do was realize technology moved along. So now it's like oh my gosh, like I don't have to get up and turn over the record every I don't know fifteen or twenty minutes, and then. I remember when we got CD players. And then I remember when we got MP3 players. And now we walk around with a thousand songs in our pocket. But here's the thing. That is the progressive journey of deconstruction where things advance. But what I didn't leave behind is Sgt. Pepper's. Because I had it on vinyl, and then I got it on tape, and then I got it on CD, and now I've got it on my iPhone. So we take things with us. Like, at the end of the day, I'm not leaving Paul Simon's Graceland behind. I'm sorry. It's just coming. And so we keep moving things along, even though things are developing. And what you'll notice now is because of the way technology works, everything ties together, doesn't it? Have you ever gotten a new phone and then wanted to, like, quit life? Right? Or maybe you've decided, you know, I don't think I need an iPhone think i'll go with android for a while and then you just want to give up on life because you realize that apple controls everything and so like everything works together and syncs together and works exactly right so if i try to somehow fit my 8-track player into that equation would i then be able to do all the things that i can do with the technology that i now have no so that's the process of deconstruction but the reality is we're always bringing good things with us that we have with us. and we So the two things I'd like to make really clear today is if we're deconstructing well, we're bringing healthy things along, number one, when you pack your bags and move, you put the things in your bags, in your luggage, that you want to bring with you. So I packed my bags from the old way of thinking, if you haven't figured out. But I brought things with me that I still need. And the second thing we do is, the reason that the, the, uh, one of the most important commandments is honor your father and mother. Do you realize that the Jewish people teach that when they, when they gave the commandment, honor your father and mother so that your life may be long, that wasn't a verse for children. That, was a, that wasn't a verse for young children. That was a verse for adult children. Because when they're young children, it's pretty easy. It, it makes sense within the dynamics of... Um, maturity for a child to listen to respect honor their parent but when you're 30 and your mom is 60 or when you're 20 and your dad is 50 or whatever it might be they realized that they needed to build things in why is that because as things progress we have a tendency to then denigrate what went before us so the two most important things are pack your bags well and even you might have had to set new boundaries or separate yourself from the generation that went before you, you still have to honor them. So we honor and celebrate everything that went before us, but all the good stuff, what they provided for us, because we stand on their shoulders. I mean, FDR said we all drink from wells we didn't dig. So we do that kind of thing. And so what happens then is this beautiful faith has always been, always been, always been a progressive faith. And when it stops being a progressive faith, it ceases to exist. When it stops being a progressive faith, we begin to weaponize it against those that don't think like us. So I honestly believe this is the reason many pastors. They're asked to lead this faith community, and yet they are given a script, the norm, the status quo, the acceptable things to say on any given Sunday morning. And they end up with game face. Game face is what we call it, where the pastor knows what he's allowed to say in the church on a Sunday morning, but he also knows what he's reading on Saturday night. So he realizes the books he's reading and the people he's listening to and the things he's finding in the Lord, he or she, excuse me, that, that they're finding, this pastor might be finding in the Lord that's beautiful and life-giving. But they also understand that game face means I've got to make sure that people don't get ticked off, leave the church, and quit tithing. So they have to come in, and believe me, I've talked to three pastors in this community in the last month that have actually said they have not taught anything new to them that they've read or discovered in over five years. Why? their church won't allow it. But the interesting thing is it's not really the church's fault either. Because what the church does is the church only has the permission that the the that is is given to them. That you only know what you know. And so the church doesn't really have that opportunity to step into anything because nothing's being said, but the pastor's afraid of losing his job. And so it's this really weird dynamic where the guy that's supposed to challenge people as the leader or whatever that pastor might be at the their responsibility is really messed up because they also want to be able to feed their kids. You can see where this dynamic gets really, really, really jacked up. And so the irony is the congregation often attacks the pastor for moving forward simply because they haven't been given the permission to go with them. So it creates this weird dynamic where no one moves because everyone feels in danger rather than framing the responsibility as... How can I stay spiritually more alive than ever? That should be our heartbeat. How can I be more alive than ever every day? How can I be alive more than I ever have been? And I believe we can intuit that we don't want this. Something in us is drawn to growth. Something in us doesn't want the time we have together to feel like a piece of wet toast. But we don't know how to do it. We don't want, like, if, if you know, some people are into, like, energy colors and stuff. So, like, if you had to give our church services a color, I would rather it not be taupe. You know what I mean? Like, I want something that's vibrant and alive and bursting and creative and imaginative and all that stuff. Why? Because that's who God is, and that's what the Scripture allows us to do. But there's this other thing that says There is this challenge where in the midst of that vibrant color, we can have pain and peace, heartache and relationship, laughter and dancing and big, big, big inclusive tables. But you can't have the big, big, big inclusive table without the pain. You can't have the laughter and dancing without the heartache and brokenness. Do you realize the root word for the word dance in the Bible is the word forgive? You will only be able to dance as well as you forgive. And you won't, if you choose to not, you can't forgive and not process pain. If you can figure out how to do that, just let me know. But you can't forgive and not process pain. You can't go around the pain and forgive. You just can't. If you go around the pain, all you do is block off that place. You now have a dead place. You've blocked off life. So what actually we do is then there's this dominant view, thought, perspective, lens, script, or arrangement that we think we're allowed to live in. This can be true for a family, a local community, or the broader society. Then when we move forward, we see something we haven't seen before. We taste something we haven't tasted before. And as it has been said, You can't unsee what you've seen. You can't unhear what you've heard. So now the difficult thing to navigate becomes that growth has great complexity. Because I can't unknow what I know and not everybody else knows what I know. I can't unhear what I've heard and be faithful to that. But I also understand not everybody's heard what I've heard. So there's complexity to this, and the complexity should allow us to move into greater inclusion and greater forgiveness and greater freedom. But the place we step into in the divine flow of God, where gravity and love pulls us forward, can actually become a place of challenge within the structures we find ourselves in. That's why the primary message of Jesus right through the middle of the Gospels is, who is my family? And the borders and the relationships. The primary message of Jesus is, I'm not going. And He wasn't saying abandon your family. He was just saying I'm not going to be bound by any structure. I'm not going to allow these relationships to hold me back. I'm going to include. And I love uh, it's a Richard Rohrism, but he says the way to development is always transcend. So the, 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 the healthy way to transcend or go higher is to always include what's happened before. And your ability to transcend will be blocked by your inability to include. If you can't get through and process what you've been through, you can't transcend. You, if you can't in some way include and learn from and deal with that, you have determined where you'll stop. The governor. So I was always taught in in my growing up that the opposition and persecution to this lifestyle of development and progression and growth comes from without. Okay, so I was always told that it comes from atheists and the ACLU that don't want me to pray at school. So the bad guys, the protagonists, the opposition, the ones that work against what it is God wants for me are the other people. What I'm now realizing is that was never the message of Jesus. The ones that you'll have to overcome are always in your group. Was Jesus having issues with the Samaritans or is Jesus having issues with the Jews? Like it is that way. That's just the way it works. According to Jesus, when he's talking about them coming against you, how many times have you heard that weird stuff? And somehow we think that we have a group. I use the ACLU because that was always a big one that we used to hear about. Uh, whatever it is that people don't want prayer in schools or people that are fighting against your religious liberties, you know, Democrats, um, whatever that might be, right? It's what I was told. It's a political party. It's this, it's this, it's, it. it's atheists. It's It's Starbucks. Um, That's trying to rip Christmas from my hand and somehow and instead give me an X on a red cup. And so those are the people that we've been taught are persecuting your religious growth. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but the people who persecute your religious growth are the religious people you've walked with. According to Jesus, the people that will oppose your growth are the people who've been in your family. And there are two ways they oppose that growth. Either first, they will oppose your growth by telling you you're wrong and giving you this fear complex that you've been deceived. You've gone too far. You've lost the faith. You don't know what you're doing. You're in fear or you're in um, in some type of danger of the slippery slope. And then they'll do the opposite and they'll tell you, remember what we've stood through together remember and then they try to bring you back in by saying oh don't you remember how how all the things we fought together all the why would you want to leave this place all of those things are things we've all had to face to get where we are now and why would we think it would change so there are systems and structures around us that we're going to have to overcome and the reality is Jesus was never talking about someone else from a land way over there with a different worldview. He was always talking about those within our family of faith, within our village, home, culture, system, structure, being the ones that will not like your change. Some of uh, so uh, one of the oldest and hardest things to wrestle with is why do some people wake up? So now, just in case, just uh, if Hope was in here, she'd be able to say it better than I can. But all of you are what I would call woke. Okay? Uh, so everybody has somehow something, a light bulb came on. Something's happened, right? You are, you, something has come alive. But one of the things that I wrestle with all the time is why do some people wake up and some people don't? And, and just to be honest, why me? Like, why did I all of a sudden Something clicked, and why do some people keep waking up? Because uh, oftentimes some people wake up and then they stop at that wake up. Why do some people wake up and then keep waking up and waking up and waking up and waking up? And and I don't have an answer for that. But as a community, how do we deal with the people around us—our coworkers, brothers, sisters, mothers, kids, best friends, and those who haven't heard what you've heard and seen what you've seen? Because the reality is, you're going to come in here on a Sunday morning, and we're going to talk about how we need to care for the poor and about. How the, the um, migrant caravan that everybody now all of a sudden doesn't talk about anymore, but is still coming towards our border, that in the Old Testament story, we're Canaan and they're Israel. Just to be clear, like we're not the good guys in that story. They're the refugees, the people who have no place to lay their head. We're the people with the kingdom and the empire and the money and the power and the wealth. In that Old Testament story, was Israel the people with the power, the money, the wealth, the army? Or were they the ones wandering through the wilderness trying to come into Canaan where there was power, wealth, money, and armies? So we'll hear that, right? And we can agree. Like, we need to care for people. We really need to care for people, genuinely. But then you have to go back to work. And you have to go to your family outing. Where people are saying things like, we have to make sure that the homeless don't take our jobs. I actually saw someone the other day who said that one of the worst things you can do is help, a, um, is, is help people who need help to maybe have a living wage or to be able to better themselves in some way. Because if they aren't educated and haven't worked as hard as you have, and then they get more than they have, they've just cut into my piece of the pie. So we've moved from a point where we might have different opinions about how to address the oppressed and the poor to now being able to openly vilify the poor. Where now it's not about, hey, we've got a nuanced discussion about, about uh, the sanctity of life. Now, I literally have seen this week some of the most disgusting and vitriolic things I've ever seen coming out of Christians' mouths about anyone that would ever have a nuanced discussion about being pro-choice. I saw a Christian woman who actually had lost her husband to a tragic car accident and was pregnant, and um, she had three children, and she was, the doctor had said there was a 100% chance she was going to die and a 99.999% chance that the baby was going to die. She said that even the fact that she was trying to have a discussion about, can I leave my three kids behind? She was kicked out of her church. She was excommunicated from her family. So we've moved from a point of having difference of opinion to being able to attack and vilify people that are in really, really challenging positions rather than just love people well. So rather than being people who pick at the abortion clinic, I just want to give all the young girls who walk out a hug and say, don't be ashamed. God loves you. Sorry. Like, what do how do we do it better? And maybe if we are going to going to say that we shouldn't have things like that happening, maybe we should stop shaming the young girls who do choose to keep the child out of wedlock and telling them that they're not accepted and talking like that they are all kinds of bad language that I'm not going to use on a Sunday morning, maybe if we didn't do that, they wouldn't feel like they had to have an abortion because they're forced into that shameful situation. So we, but here's the thing, we can talk about that and agree in our family and culture here, but we have to live, right? And so we go home and turn on the news and we spend time with people who who don't know what you know, who haven't seen what you've seen. And so deconstruction is how do we do that? We've been given this really powerful, life-giving good thing that is happening, and you can actually cause disruption. It can, if this is not unsettling things in our real lives, then what good is it? Jesus didn't come so you would believe differently. Jesus came so you would live differently. Jesus came for practice, not belief. And so he leads us into these conversations. Things. And Jesus over and over and over again said, if you take me seriously, you're going to keep growing. And the only way you're going to do this is keep finding that your enemy is really your neighbor. Jesus over and over again said the way you're going to keep loving better is that your enemy is really your neighbor and that you've been called to love your neighbor. Then you will become more and more tuned into what it means to be human and that we're all connected by this beautiful goodness called the image of God. So in this way, when we are deconstructing, we're actually finding that we're the ones being taken apart and deconstructed by Jesus. I'm not sitting down and saying, Okay, I want to tear down this thing and burn it down. Jesus deconstructs us as we see him better. Does that make sense? So it's not just us getting some, you know, it's not like we went to college and all of a sudden got enlightened. Nothing against college or enlightenment. But it's not that. It's Jesus, as I see him better, I can't help but deconstruct anything that would stand in the way of that. And so in that way, I uh, I told Tosh the other day that my phrase for 2019 is no-ism, is founded on a turn toward love. No ism is founded on a turn toward love. No sexism, no racism, no classism is founded on a turn toward love. So how do we love better and lose our isms? That's deconstruction. This is often the way we deconstruct, by loving. In this way, humanity and creation is seen as good and giving. In Jesus, God is revealed to humanity as the face of God, we talked about that Thursday night, so that we could personally fall in love with what most of history has presumed was a distant and angry God. Then, in the Jesus model, we find our own acts of compassion and justice are to be the natural outflowing of love rather than ways to earn what he's already given us. So the, the idea of this deconstruction, and I'm going to use the, the Richard Rohr model, and I'm going to talk about the boxes since we have them here. Uh, the, the, um, I, I read a lot about this, and there's lots of uh, really cool models, but I really like the way Richard Rohr puts it when he talks about deconstruction. He calls it the three boxes of life, and the three boxes of life are deconstruction, or excuse me, construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction, because the point is not to stay deconstructed, right? So if we decided that you wanted to add on to your house, but you just go in and knock walls out and leave them like that. So the point is, how do we put it back together? And I think we are in a stage now where God is putting things back together. We have seen what we aren't supposed to be. So how do we focus on what we are supposed to be? How do we focus on what he has called us to do? And what I think is that in a healthy spiritual model, it's going to be the prophet and the priest. Jesus identified and, um, and exemplified both of those two things. The prophet is always the one who's willing to, um, to call things out when they're not right. We've really not read the prophets well. This is a sidebar. But we've really not read the prophets well. Is Pentecostals, um, as, as charismatic people, as evangelicals, as Protestants, we've really not understood what the prophets were doing. The thing that's so phenomenal about the Bible, you realize this is the only faith book that exists where it contains its own self-critique. It's the only faith book that exists where it, it's welcome to critique itself where they call itself into question, where they leave the stuff in that makes you say, is God really real? So like you'll have on the same page, doubt and faith. You'll have on the same page, God, why did you abandon me? Like you're not supposed to say that. In fact, I always laugh when people talk about the Bible being nothing but propaganda. If it is, it's the crappiest propaganda ever written. Because it does the opposite of brainwashing. Like the Bible includes itself, in fact, with its own faith giants saying, is it real? (laughs) Like questioning the whole thing. It includes Peter denying Jesus. It includes David saying, God, why have you turned against me? Why have you left me? Why have you abandoned me? Like it includes the prophets saying, Israel, you've gone astray. You've become Egypt. It includes all of that stuff. But what we've done wrong, I think, is that because we didn't understand what the prophets were doing, we haven't included the prophets in our lifestyle. So the prophetic is not about saying foretelling something. The prophetic oftentimes has to com- uh, comfort those who are afflicted, but also to afflict the comfortable. It's supposed to jar us. It's supposed to say things to us that rattle us and that are extreme and do weird stuff. And then the priest comes in and rebuilds and establishes. But if you don't have a prophetic role, which is the second box, you'll never get to the priestly role, which is the third box. And you're going to get stuck in the first box. And the first box is where all of us have come from. The first box is construction. The first box is rules. And I would guarantee that everybody in this room could give me a list of the rules you thought about God. What questions you were allowed to ask, what questions you weren't allowed to ask, what things you weren't allowed to say. I love watching everybody's face on Thursday nights when we do midrash, and I ask you a question, and there's this thought that literally goes across your face that says, can I say this? Right? Like there's this thought of like, is this okay? Right? And, but why? Because we've all been handed a conservative construction box. We've been given borders and rules. And there's nothing wrong with those borders and rules. That's the healthy way to live. But we begin in what what they call order, and then we begin with almost entirely. Now, here's the thing. Order's really good because our kids need order. Like uh, We're going to talk about this at some point about how we do this with our kids. Because the healthiest way for a child to develop is starting with the first box of order. Children need structure and rules. And whether that's literal children or spiritual children, it's important. We have to start there. At, but the challenge is it breeds a, a – it, it's always going to breed tribalism. Staying in the first box will always breed tribalism. Why? Because you stay in it long enough. That you get really comfortable in your borders and then you begin to say that we're all right because we're in the same box and we agree. So it will always go there. At first, it's your comfort zone. Your kids need to know that they're safe and comfortable and affirmed and all that stuff, right? But then eventually, if you have an 18-year-old kid who's never encountered anybody except for his family or her family, they're not going to be able to go outside and have a healthy life. That's what the church has done. Most of us have had limited interaction with people who look differently than us, think differently than us, or have a different lifestyle. How many of us, when we see somebody who has a different, uh, a, a different dress style, or maybe, uh, I mean, some of us are still, even even as we become more accepting of LGBT, LGBTQ, how many people, what do you remember the first time you saw somebody in little old Greencastle who was different? Or little old Dan? Or a little Coatesville, who is different. I think that's where the gay pri- pride rally starts, is Coatesville. But uh, that all of that stuff, why, and that's not wrong. Those biases are things that were handed to us because we just get comfortable with people that look and think and act like us. And so what happens then is we start in order. And what happens then is that we begin to mirror other individuals who are, you realize most of our stuff is because we mirror the people who look like us. So then it becomes this need for order. That's where our defensiveness comes in. So then we move into disorder. We slowly recognize the invitation for face-to-face where God in love begins to break down the borders and walls of our boxes. But the problem is, there is that liberal place, and I'm not using that in a political way, uh, that liberal place is a place that we're not supposed to stay either. And that's what oftentimes happens. And I have seen it dangerous, uh, and, and I, I think about it all the time with our kids, because I don't. it's not healthy for our kids to be raised in this spiritual box. They need to start here. Now, that doesn't mean they need to think like I thought, but that means that they need to go through the process of having structure and order and development. And we can't start our kids off in Genesis 1, the first time we read it together in kids' class, saying, hey, and you know this is a poem, right? This isn't real. Like, you, that's not healthy for them. Now, when you're reading Genesis 1 with them and, and Genesis 2 with them and they say, it's kind of weird that there's a talking snake. You can say, yep, that is kind of weird, isn't it? What do you think that means? Right? You can have those conversations, but sometimes we do them a disservice, both spiritually and and, uh, in the maturation process with our kids, if we try to start here. You get what I'm saying? Like, we shouldn't start with burning our bras. First, we should probably buy them and then burn them. Okay? So, All right, so the third box is the box of reorder. Among a few people, there are some who actually break into unitive consciousness where they actually come to what, what has been known through the ages as enlightenment, where we actually come to a place where we hold all things well and where we're not threatened by the first box because that's the other thing that happens. How many of you have found yourself frustrated at where where and how you learned as you've gotten into the second box so the two things that we fall into in the second box it causes you to be frustrated with the previous box and it causes you to feel shameful because you were in the first box anybody felt any of that right that's healthy but you won't be able to move into the third box until you can recognize and move through those places and say, you know what? I value and honor and cherish and celebrate that first box and what it gave me. And I'm not gonna be ashamed that I wasn't born into the second box because I wasn't supposed to be. I didn't stay there too long. I wasn't wrong. I didn't miss it. I didn't waste time. I didn't do all that stuff. But we have to go through that To get to here, because until that, you'll just keep bouncing back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. This box is literally the place where you are no longer bound by either one of these. You're not bound by the order of this box or the disorder of this box, but you're free. And I would suggest that we go through this over and over and over again, because in another few years, we're probably as a church going to go through So what's going to happen is now this box in some areas of who we are will have become this box again. It will start over again and now because what happens is God gives something fresh and new and vibrant. But we as human beings love to make rules and doctrines and belief systems and structures So the thing that God gave to us that was freeing from this and liberated us into this really quickly, if we're not careful, can become the next rule system that brings us back to here. So we have to break those walls down again. And so we just go through the whole process over and over and over again. It's order, it's disorder, and it's reorder. Or it's construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction over and over and over again. Now, the beauty of it is if we do it right, we get to this point, and at this point, we have transcended to the point we've brought the things with us that we need to bring. It's almost like the trial by fire that makes pure as gold. By the time it gets here, the things that we've gotten here with us have made it through the fire. But then, if we're not careful, what will happen is the gold that's made it through the fire, if we stay in this box too long, we will start making a golden cap. make an image or an idol of those things so he starts us over again to melt it and burn it down so that we can develop and come back through it so then we go here you guys with me okay so the the, the way this actually works is first of all to understand this box is not rebellion What we have to understand is that in that way, we're going to... How many have ever read the prophets and found the prophets to be people that everybody really liked? It was a real big fan of. You know, the king was like, you know, I'm kind of feeling rough. Bring me one of the prophets to make me feel better. Right? They were, there There is a reason they called them the weeping prophets. There's a reason that they were, they were always... They're just in that place. So in this box... It's you're going to have people tell you that you're wrong and you're in rebellion and you need to watch it and you chill out and you need to read the Bible and you need to. How many times if I had a nickel for every time I've had somebody quote a scripture at me when I'm in this box, that's essentially intended to try to get me back into this box. So what happens is there is that thing, but I promise you that you can't get into successfully into reorder unless you go through disorder. And what happens is during the civil rights movement, they were told they were in rebellion, too. Any good liberation movement. I'm sure if you were asking the Egyptians, the Israelites were in rebellion. That's just the way it works. So we have to go through that. But we also have to understand is it, that's part of the journey. And we're going to get it wrong, and we're going to get an attitude problem, and we're going to get frustrated, and we're going to get mouthy, and we're going to think we know it all. That's what this box does. That's why people talk about politically that liberals are smug. It's just what people say. Why? Because you're in this box, and you're in the rebellion box where you're questioning things. But when, as you develop and mature to get to this box, you no longer are stuck in this place where it's like, well, why is that? Why is that? Why is that? Why is that? You move successfully into this place. All right, I'm going to wrap up here in just a minute. So what happens then, the final reorder stage, is where darkness... Hear me, because this is big. Darkness and light can coexist. Reorder is the place where you no longer have to understand everything. Here is the place where you defend what you currently understand. Here is the place where you question everything that you used to understand. And here is where you learn that you don't have to understand the place where you have all the answers here's where you get ticked off and try to go find the answers because you realize you didn't have any of the answers and here's where you no longer need them and so that is the paradox of this third box where we actually become in reorder or restructure and this is true of uh, what they actually call contemplative knowing death is now part of life and it's oh this stage, we're finally able to surrender fully, to trust completely, and to move pla- past understanding into peace. That's the intention. We dare not get rid of the pain before we've learned what it has to teach us. Most of religion gives answers way too quickly and diminishes pain too easily. I believe that religion, one of the primary problems of religious structures is we prescribe pain medicine too quickly. Overprescribe. What I mean by that is as soon as somebody is going through a hard time, we try to find a verse to give them as a pain sedative to make the pain go away. We try to have an answer that alleviates the pain and makes them feel better. And that is an over prescriptive mentality. We try to lay hands on somebody to get them through the problem, to get them out of it. We've overprescribed faith And so, what is supposed to happen is the pain is part of the journey. The heartbreak is part of the journey. And when you do that, what you're doing is, as we all know, you're masking pain. Everybody know how that's how pain medicine works it just masks the pain. Whatever's messed up doesn't get fixed. You just don't feel it anymore. So now, I no longer. Uh, It's not that I now can process the fact that I lost a loved one or somebody tragically passed away. Now I've just been given the book of Romans, and all things work together for good. I don't actually understand any better about how it's supposed to work. I don't have any more robust faith about it. I've just been given a pain sedative. That is dealt with this immediate thing, but it's still there. So then we wonder why five years later pain creeps back up, and we can't trust people, and we can't walk with people, and we fall apart when something happens. Because I never actually learned to walk correctly, I just took pain medicine. So what happens is in the third box, that's where all of that comes together, and you don't have to fight the pain. So we must resist the instant fix um, and acknowledge ourselves as beginners to be open in true transformation in the great spiritual traditions. The wounds to our ego are our teachers. The wounds to your ego become your teacher. How can a Christian look at the crucified one and not understand this initial and essential point? The resurrected Christ is the iconic third box. He died. He died. He, f- he felt, I mean, it didn't work. Like, by everybody's standards in the natural, it didn't work. Jesus, even at that point, Father, if there's any way this doesn't have to be the way, let this cup pass. Why? Because that's the third box. That's the place where you're willing to give your life to walk through whatever it is God is leading you through so that you can have this reorder. So all of these things. Uh, are are vitally important last thing there is no direct flight from order to reorder there's always the connection of disorder you're going to have to face rebellion you're going to have to probably face rejection you're going to have to face shame you're going to have to face frustration you're going to have to face doubt you're going to have to face confusion There is no direct flight that goes from everything's in place, and I understand it all, to now it's reordered and I'm perfectly at peace. That's not how it works. Because the journey is, how do you, in this box, find thanksgiving in the midst of pain that leads you to peace? This gate is where you learn thanksgiving in the midst of disorder, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of pain, so that you can actually get to peace. Jesus had to endure what he endured. He knew that, uh, that we would all want to de- deny disorder unless he made it clear. Maybe that's one reason he actually died, to show us the way. And these are all, indeed, these three things will last. People that have these gifts, faith, hope, and love are indestructible. The beauty of this level of growth is that our ability to include which ultimately determines our ability to transcend will lead us forward until you can bring with you cherish and include what God has given you in this stage. You will not be able to transcend to the next one until you can find the beauty and the value of this moment. You won't go to the next place. Have you ever been someone maybe you've had seasons where like you get to a point and then you just feel like you're starting over again in a place in who you are like I've done that over and over. And what I've really learned is until I can get to the place where I can value and cherish and celebrate that place for what he's trying to do in me and teach me, I'm going to have to go through that again. And I don't go through it again as punishment. I go through it again because he wants me to learn. Because I will be a detriment to myself and others in the third box without it. So faith, hope, and love. What I have learned is that the red flag of ego is always defensiveness. Ego is the part of us that always wants to be right to win. It is defended and self-protected by its very nature, and it must be right at all costs. The fine line is to not be overly defensive of our own rights while also not uh, causing a false self to be constructed. Jesus called us into this work. So, I would encourage you today, these three boxes, hopefully this analogy helps somewhat, but once again, we've all been here. We grew up here, some of us, right? Then in many ways, we've all been here. Some of us are still here right now. or here again. But he's always leading you to this. He's not going to abandon you in some rebellious floating state where all has failed. He's leading us into life. And so we get to walk through this with him and be the prophet that challenges it and be the priest that rebuilds it and in that place we find peace because that's where he's always leading us. So Father, we love you. We thank you. You are so good to us, and we ask you and invite you to be our um, our leader, to be our director. the Holy Spirit would lead us into truth, that it would lead us into peace, that it would lead us into the place where we can embrace what you're doing and not have to have the answers to do it. And we ask you, Father, that you would give us strength and you would give us maturity and you would give us wisdom and you would give us grace to deal with all of the opposition and the people that might not be a big fan of this journey. And help us to understand that they can't understand it because they're not in it. And help us to cherish them and treat them with grace and not be frustrated. And help us to show grace to ourselves and that we wouldn't fall into shame. And ultimately, help us, Father, to honor our father and mother that have went before us. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, everybody have a great night. We will see you on Thursday night for... Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.org.